0: I'm Caleb Zacharin, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Politics and Polemics. Today I'm speaking with Francesco DeSantis, Outreach Coordinator of the Center for Study of Responsive Law, and Project Editor of the Incommunicados, a collection of letters sent by Ralph Nader and Bruce Fine to political leaders, CEOs, and even the head team physician of the New York Yankees. As the title suggests, none of these letters were ever responded to. Within them, you get to see the intellect and tenacity of two American citizens committed to their first amendment rights. Francesco, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network.
1: Happy to be here. Uh as you said, my name is Francesco DeSantis. I am the outreach coordinator at the Center for Study of Responsive Law. I'm also the outreach director for Essential Books. I also write and host the In Case You Haven't Heard segment
0: on the podcast version of the Ralph Nader radio hour. And do you tell us a little bit about the two main subjects of this project, Ralph Nader and Bruce Fine.
1: Ralph Nader in case your viewers are not familiar, he is somewhat of a creature of a different era, Um, is the leading consumer advocate, longtime leading consumer advocate in America. He is known sometimes as the founder of the consumer movement, most famous for taking on General Motors and Detroit, the big three auto industry uh, in the 1960s. published a book called Unsafe at Any Speed, uh, which largely covered the Chevy Cor- or the uh, General Motors Corvair which would uh, turn over on even very slight uh, inclines and even at very low speeds, hence unsafe at any speed. Um, Bruce Fine is a constitutional lawyer and scholar who um, served in the Reagan administration. He was in the FCC as well as uh, Deputy Ch- Attorney General. Um, and
0: he, along with Ralph, collectively they have over 100 years of Washington experience, so as far as this project is, concer- is concerned, the incommunicados, I was wondering if you just tell a little bit, a little at high level, uh, what the project is about and why uh, you guys decided to create it.
1: Absolutely. So this report is uh, something of a spiritual successor to a previous book that uh, Mr. Nader has published. <clears throat> In 2015, he published Return to Sender, which was a collection of unanswered letters to presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Um, this book is a little more wide ranging, uh, focused mostly on Congress, but as you noted, uh, with some notable exceptions, CEOs and, um, some figures in the world of professional athletics. Um, but the central idea here is that the constitution grants citizens of the United States, um, not only freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, but also the freedom to have your grievances redressed. And according to Mr. Nader and the way that he frames the book is that, um, you can write a letter to Congress. No one can stop you from doing that. But unless they actually answer that and address the substantive concern that you raise, substantive, um, proposal, substantive idea for a hearing, et cetera, you're not really having your, uh, grievance redressed, so to speak. Right. And so fundamentally, the growing and pervasive issue of non-responsiveness at the highest
0: levels of power um, is impinging on our First Amendment rights. The book is organized thematically uh, in the first section, very timely, is about COVID-19. And I was wondering if you could just discuss uh, some of Ralph and Bruce's thinking around COVID and, and what it was that they were trying to get political leaders to, uh, to understand or address about this issue.
1: Mr. Nader has been a long, long long-time proponent of um, health and particularly um, uh, preparedness for uh, global pandemics and epidemics. So one of the letters in the book, in fact, is uh, an early letter to um, General Mattis uh, during his time as um, Secretary of Defense in the Trump administration calling on him to, among other things, uh, look into military preparedness for pandemics, which of course they did not. And in fact, Trump administration dismantled a lot of the uh, pandemic preparedness programs that the Obama administration had put in place. So uh, Mr. Nader was very alarmed when the COVID-19 pandemic uh, began and realized quite <laughs> quickly that the Trump administration and and President Trump himself at the time uh, were... Entirely, uh, almost laughably unprepared um, for this kind of disaster, and called on congressional leaders to uh, essentially take take charge here, to take the reins and uh, set up a commission to uh, address the COVID nineteen pandemic, independent of the uh, presidency. Uh, and this, of course, was not done. It was not even. Letter was not even answered. <laughs> um, but I think we can all agree that it would have been in the best interest of the nation to depoliticize the issue, to turn over uh, treatment to the experts, right? I mean, we've all gotten tired of hearing just listen to the doctors, just listen to the experts. But I think, especially in those early days when there was so much confusion regarding the disease and so much, uh, so little political leadership. Um, I recall myself listening to congressional hearings with Acosta and Robert Redfield. And, you know, they were saying, oh, this will be over by the summer. You know, this is this isn't a big deal. We don't even have major case numbers, blah, blah, blah. Right. And at the same time, you know, it just keeps spreading. Um, so I, I certainly think that they should have taken up Mr. Nader's idea of have of creating a COVID-19 commission to guide us through the pandemic. Um, but like so many things in this book, it, it was never followed through on, unfortunately. So um, I hope that that in particular will serve as a kind of a wake-up call for uh, elites, right, who think that they know best and um, don't have to listen to input from citizen leaders.
0: The next section of the book covers the Trump impeachment. Uh, I was wondering if you could discuss those letters as well.
1: Absolutely. So a big point that Mr. Nader made... Um, starting in the in the first impeachment attempt with the um Russiagate so-called Russiagate scandal, and then later during the second impeachment attempt, um is that these are are far too limited, far too disconnected from the everyday reality of most Americans. You know, the guy just trying to to get by on, you know, federal minimum wage seven twenty five an hour, Mr. Nader thinks, and I agree that person did not really care too much about an abstract corruption scandal in a faraway country, right? Instead, uh, Mr. Nader tried to get um, House leadership to do a broad-based impeachment uh, going after him, President Trump, for uh, all of these serial criminal and civil um, effronteries that he engaged in regarding the American people, right? Um, everything from... The Hatch Act violations, um, putting his name on the COVID nineteen uh, stimulus checks, um, to to larger, you know, questions of of you know, did he break U.S. law by engaging in presidential assassinations, right? And and if so, right, is that an impeachable offense? And 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 more so, why not, right? If the purpose of the impeachment was to um, Show to the American people that President Trump was not fit to govern. Then it only makes sense to present to the American people the uh, multitude and and <laughs> you know varied plethora of of uh, criminality that was uh, that was engaged in at the highest levels. So
0: the, the following sections they they don't just deal with the present moment, uh, President Trump and his um, his administration. They, they deal with presidents going as, as far back as George W Bush uh and and there's a section on foreign policy and war uh a, a very large section uh in the book filled with tons of unanswered letters so uh you know in, in sort of broads broad sweeps what is the, the nature of these letters that he sent to uh at the at, as according to the book three, three three four different presidents
1: yes well Mr Nader is certainly an outspoken critic of war and um has very distinct Foreign policy views. <clears throat> Some of the letters deal with um, Yemen and the situation in Yemen, imploring President Biden, in fact, to uh, end masturbation in Yemen, bring the war to a close, which have there have been attempts in the Biden administration, though those have largely fallen by the wayside. And now uh, China seems to be leading the uh, peace effort in that country. Other letters deal with um, Venezuela and the foolish, the fool's errand. That was engaged in by the Trump administration to try to topple and destabilize government. Nicolas Maduro. Um, another yet another letter deals with um, Palestine and uh, specifically President Trump's uh, almost absurd <laughs> uh, marriage with with Benjamin uh, Netanyahu and and the Israeli state um, and his complete abandonment of the Palestinian people. Um, kind of shedding even the appearance of neutrality that some American presidents have tried to. Uh, maintain with regard to that situation, um, and then of course, um, Afghanistan. There are letters to the House and Senate, uh, the chairs of the of the Foreign Policy Committees, House of Foreign Affairs, uh, Senate Foreign Relations, <clears throat> on imploring them to hold hearings on Afghanistan and the what a <laughs> long, drawn out, uh, expensive boondoggle of of a uh, engagement that has been.
0: In, in that section, as, as you mentioned, covers a lot of uh, a lot of foreign policy failures, uh, and and this next section moves on to you know just more general failures of politicians. There, there seems to be a theme here uh, that that <laughs> the, the, these letters seem to be concerned with uh, you know uh, what what Nader and and Fine consider to be uh, you know th- these aren't uh, let, let's say this they aren't uh, necessarily uh, congratulatory letters. So uh, if, if you could discuss this section of just general failures of politicians
1: yes yeah, so well mr nader has high standards <laughs> um and few politicians meet them um but in particular this gets back to the central question of the book which is citizens as we know have a right to petition their government but does the government have a responsibility and an obligation really to take those proposals seriously and um act on them and it is clear by the lack of response to these queries that they do not feel that way. <laughs> and therefore, it it becomes completely uh, ins, uh, insulated from public pressure, public input, right? It, it becomes a question of, of what the politicians are willing to do on their own accord, um, or, you know, on behalf of their donors. Um, so a lot of the letters... On failures of politicians writ large, have to do with um, ideas that should be raised in the public sphere, should be
0: taken seriously, and are instead. So the the final sections uh, they don't concern politicians or political leaders, uh, and you know I'm wondering what Fine and Nader see as the value of sending these sort of letters uh, to non political leaders, considering that there's no constitutional. Uh, Rights to petition a member of civil society and uh, what the thinking was in just including these letters about a general, uh, let's say, maybe um, approach to thinking about change that Nader and Fine take.
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, Mr. Nader, again, has been very involved in kind of cor- corporate accountability campaigns, um, shareholder activism, these kinds of things. Um, obviously, um consumer rights and uh taking on big corporations uh on the on behalf of the little guy so to speak um and similarly right while there is no kind of obligation in the constitution for ceos to answer your letters there used to be much more of a of a norm around that right if if, like with congress if you sent a major business figure a serious letter um you might you know expect a response at least a confirmation of receipt and that has changed as a cultural norm which i think he would like to draw attention to the other part of it is that we don't want to give the impression that mr nader is alone in not getting his letters returned right um at least he would contend and, and has been my anecdotal experience this is true that many individuals and even uh, civic organizations send letters um, and received no response, and they don't want to admit that because it makes them look, frankly, weak. But if you don't admit it, and you don't have a frank discussion about the state of that kind of communication, substantive uh, outreach to leaders in the political and business class, then nothing can actually be done about it because um, you know no one no one views it as a problem. And Mr. Nader also draws a lot of attention to the fact that. A lot of people who do reach out get answers, or at least more uh, responsiveness from the offices, whether uh, congressional or corporate, um, if they are simply reaching out regarding, in, in the case of Congress, casework, or in the case of corporation, uh, if it's a you know disgruntled customer or something. Um, but in terms of actually addressing larger questions, th- there's just a you know
0: giant whooshing sound. <laughs> One of the, uh, the 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 I would say most interesting sections is you, you have a section towards the end about uh, you know letters to to people involved in in professional sports, uh, and I was wondering if you could talk about the nature of these letters, uh, and you know just uh, why, uh, why why sports is uh, you know Nader uh, Nader is a, a big baseball fan. I, I kind of uh, <laughs> got from these letters. Could if you could talk about about that a little about his personality too. Um, Mr. Nader is certainly a
1: huge sports fan in general and baseball fan specifically. He is a Yankees fan. I regret to inform you.
0: <laughs> I, I'm wearing a Mets hat for, for <laughs> listeners. Yeah.
1: Um, he even has a, uh, massive signed poster of Lou Gehrig in his office, <laughs> um, which I think gives some indication. I mean, Mr. is uh, reaching 90 years old, you know, he is, he's an old school baseball fan. And still very much a lover of the sport and has gotten to, you know, uh, exercise that in some fun ways over the years. He he played a game of baseball, um, administration officials versus uh, civic advocates in the Carter administration. Uh, <laughs> um, but yes, one of the groups that Mr. Jader is involved with these days is called League of Fans. Um, many of these letters are co-written with the head of that group, a guy named Dr. Ken Reed. Dr. Ken Reed, who recently republished his book, How We Can Save Sports a Game Plan with a New Introduction. And these letters concern, well, they run the gamut from uh, concussions in Major League Football um, to uh, one big hobby horse, Mr. Nader is the, uh, the frequency of ads in a professional, specifically baseball games, specifically on the radio. Um, <laughs> but he doesn't watch television.
0: <laughs> um, I, I'm glad that he's doing that because I actually uh, I, I'm sort of old school in the sense that I actually prefer to listen to Mets games on the radio as opposed to watching it mostly because it's it's free. But yeah, there there are there are more ads in a baseball game on the radio than literally I think any form of entertainment I've ever I've ever seen.
1: It's certainly true. They recently did a study on this actually, and 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 found just a eye popping amount of ads uh, per game. Uh, and and recently, your view, your uh, listeners can check out the recent episode of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour uh, with Dr. Ken Reed and Tyler Kepner, who is the baseball writer for the New York Times and recently published the grandest stage history of the World Series. Um, and they discussed this this study and the prevalence of of ads, just the ubiquity of ads in, uh, in in those kinds of broadcasts. Um, with this with these letters, I will say and as is the case with some of the letters to the, um, politicians, um, like, Commissioner Manfred has answered some of those letters. This just happens to be a letter that he did not, uh, feel inclined to answer for whatever reason. Um, and the same goes for, for instance, with regard to the impeachment letters, those letters were never directly answered, but Mr. Nieder did, uh, speak with Speaker Pelosi at the time and discussed this, uh, Question of whether to go for a narrow impeachment or, or something more broad-based, and obviously she chose to go with the narrow option. But but it is not as though um, she just never heard
0: <laughs> the argument. And speaking of letters of response, you you featured two letters at the end, and I'm wondering if you you know what what are these two letters and why include them? What was the 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 points that you that you were trying to illustrate with these responses?
1: Absolutely. So one of the responses is from. Uh, henry ford ii who was the head of the ford motor company at the time um and that was to kind of give a taste of what things were like uh in the old days so to speak um where you could reasonably expect to get your letters to these kinds of major figures returned and you know it's not um effusive but it is certainly uh substantive and addressing the substantive questions and concerns raised in the original letter sent to him um the other piece is a uh, <laughs> is a somewhat uh, humorous um, reprint from the New York Times about uh, letters that the unanswered letters in Return to Sender. Um, but I think both kind of go to larger point that um, there used to be an expectation, and our expectations for these people, whether in the corporate world or in the athletics world or in or in politics have just become so much lower than they used to be, and and they continue to get lower. Um, And it doesn't have to be like that. We should raise our expectations and um, try to reassert some control over the institutions that either we directly control, uh, you know, in a technical sense, at least like our government, um, like our Congress, but also corporations that ultimately rely on the the good... uh, will that they carry with their customers and and you know satisfaction of their paying customers in order to survive as entity
0: the uh, the last thing that i that i want to ask is you know this is a i don't know if it's directly part of or uh, at least tangentially related to the C- center for study of responsive law uh and i was wondering if you could just for, for a moment just talk a little bit about uh you know the work of the center uh, and some of the more more general things besides this project that, that you guys do?
1: Absolutely. So the center is a um, nonprofit that Mr. Nader founded in the 1970s. It has been his main vehicle for uh, many, many decades now. Um, Mr. Nader also founded Public Citizen, but um, generally has kept himself separate from that institution. Um, it was run for a long time, obviously, by Joan Claybrook, one of Ralph's many, many (laughs) protégés um, whom I would like to count myself among. Um, And we have worked on on a great many uh, issues over the years, ranging from bank redlining to um, standardized testing discrimination, to um, exploitation of natural resources, nuclear power. Um, currently I am advocating for a bill, uh, this is something that we first, um, floated back in, in about 1980, um, it's called the Corporate Crime Database Act and it would essentially create rap sheets for corporations, uh, where before there, and currently (laughs) there are none, right? Individuals have rap sheets. If you get arrested, steal a loaf of bread, you're, uh, permanently in the, uh, what's called the Uniform Crime Reporting System which is uh, maintained by the FBI. But if your corporation poised an entire town, there's no real uh, rap sheet, so to speak. And in fact, um, if you aren't prosecuted uh, and instead enter into, which is increasingly common, enter into a deferred prosecution or non-prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice, they track that internally, DOJ, but do not present that to the public, at least not in any kind of systematized way. And... Uh, there is no centralized reporting for the various agencies that might bring suits um, or or what are called enforcement actions against corporations. So say Justice sues a company for um, violating environmental rules, but they also uh, are fined by the EPA, those won't really be presented together necessarily. Again, not at least in any kind of systematized way. Another issue that we work on, uh, that I've been working on, is... Um, protecting uh, payment choice options. So uh, there's an increasing move towards cashless, it's called. Um, And this has actually been banned by many states and municipalities, including New York City, Colorado, New Jersey, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Miami-Dade County, uh, D.C., and so on. But corporations are wily creatures they find ways around these kinds of rules and they stop a lot of rules from from going into effect or stop them from being enforced or um otherwise skirt these rules and get exceptions inserted into the bills um but we're very serious about this issue uh both for its impact on low-income individuals um, people who can't necessarily afford to have bank accounts and, and bank cards and these things, uh, but also on the average consumer who does not have to, um, should not have to uh, submit all of their payments into a kind of public record um, where that can be tracked and, and purchased as data. You know, you you just, there's no reason why you should have to buy a cup of coffee with a credit card.
0: You're here. Uh, <laughs> now. I, I uh, well, Francesco, thank you so much for for being guest on the New Books Network. Um, the book is The It is a collection of letters unresponded to, uh, sent by Ralph Nader and Bruce Fine. Thank you so much.